A number of years ago, a national magazine ran a cartoon that traced the development of one concept within a business company from its inception by its creator to its completion after it had made the company rounds. The cartoon showed that by the time the original idea went through all of the company's departments and everybody had a crack at enhancing it, it was totally unrecognizable when it got back to its creator. Now, what was intended to be a humorous cartoon actually, folks, sheds a great deal of light on a very serious subject because what happened to this one company's idea was very similar to what happened to God's command concerning the Sabbath day and the law of the Sabbath to not work on that day. God had originally given the Sabbath to the nation of Israel for the basic purpose of giving the Jewish people simply a day off to rest, to get refreshment, to regroup, to recover from working hard all week. But after the Pharisees got through enhancing it, they turned it into an oppressive tyrant so that it was unrecognizable even to its creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we so often read in the New Testament about Jesus and the Pharisees having just so many conflicts and sharp disagreements over how to observe the Sabbath. And one of those sharp disagreements is found at the beginning of Luke chapter 6, our present study. We started this last week. We continue it this week. Here's what we read. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. And he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he did. He got up and came forward. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to him. Now, last week, as we began a study of these verses, I pointed out to you that what connects this passage with chapter 5, the previous chapter, is this, that in answer to the Pharisees asking Jesus why he and his disciples did not fast frequently like they did, that was the custom, the tradition to fast two times a week, Jesus used an illustration to answer them. He used an illustration about new wine and old wineskins to explain his position. He told them that just as one would not put new wine into old wineskins because when the new wine fermented and expanded, it would just burst burst the old wineskins, the worn out wineskins. Likewise, and here was his point, 
He wanted them to know likewise, he did not come to put new life, his life, regenerated life, gospel life, into their old, worn out, man-made religious traditions and rituals like fasting frequently. He wanted the Pharisees to understand that he had not come to carry on or to teach their human traditions that simply oppressed people. Instead, he came to set men free from those burdensome and stifling and oppressive rules by calling them to experience new life in him. And the most burdensome and oppressive of all of these religious weights were the many Sabbath day rules invented by the rabbis. And that's why, as we saw last week, Luke opens chapter 6 by telling us about this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over how to observe the Sabbath. Now, the specific issue, if you'll recall, at heart was this conflict that the Pharisees accused Christ's disciples of breaking the Mosaic law. Why? Well, They felt they were guilty of breaking the Sabbath because they put some effort into picking some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and then eating the grain. The Pharisees felt like like they broke the Sabbath because in their minds, this was work. They had a rule that said that, that this specific activity by Christ's disciples constituted work and therefore it was a violation of the Sabbath law which said that yes six days of the week you will work but not on the seventh. The seventh is the Sabbath you must rest on that day. Now our Lord's response to this ridiculous charge and this ridiculous rule was to defend himself and the actions of his men by giving several arguments to explain that their behavior was not at all not at all a violation of the original intent of the Sabbath law. And it is those arguments presented by Jesus that make up the heart and the core of this passage. However, I I want you to understand this story isn't simply about clarifying a first century Jewish Sabbath day controversy. Like everything else in the Gospel of Luke, this incident is designed to show us exactly who Jesus Christ is. He is the God-man. He is deity in human flesh. This is why Luke records Jesus saying these words in verse 5. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, by these words, not only is Jesus declaring himself uh, to have authority over the Sabbath, But in referring, note this, to himself as the Son of Man, he is using an Old Testament title of deity, very familiar to all the Jewish people of that day. I'll explain more about this when we get to this verse later. But for right now, what we need to understand is that as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is saying that he has the right to explain and to clarify the meaning of the law of the Sabbath. But listen closely. As you begin to understand these arguments set forth by Jesus, something very special is going to take place in your heart. You will find yourself in awe of him because you will realize that only God himself could be this brilliant, 
this insightful and have this depth of wisdom to see through all of the nonsense of the Pharisees' traditions and to have such a clear understanding of the meaning, the true meaning of Scripture. One of the greatest privileges Michelle and I have ever had and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, one of the greatest privileges we have ever had was spending some time with John MacArthur and his wife Patricia in Italy many years ago during a time of ministry and then doing some sightseeing around the country. And during our time together with the MacArthurs, something that that John said to me left a great impression on me, so great that I have never forgotten this, He told me that he always approaches Christ's words in Scripture with the assumption that they will be so incredibly deep, so profound, so brilliant beyond anything that a mere human could ever come up with. And you know what? He's absolutely right. And that's how I try to approach Scripture because that's the right way to do it. And this opening passage here in Luke chapter 6 bears this out because as we follow our Lord's arguments in answering the Pharisees' accusation of breaking the law and explaining to them why he and his disciples did not follow their silly Sabbath day rules, his intellectual and spiritual brilliance comes through, revealing himself to be exactly who he claimed to be, Lord of all, including Lord of the Sabbath. Now, before we look at our text this morning, I want to remind you of the relevancy of this passage. I touched on it last week. I want to reiterate it again. While it's true that we are thousands of years removed from the specific Jewish legalism of the first century, I want you to know that pharisaical religious traditions continue to plague Christians today. Even though the New Testament never says that Sunday is the Christian's Sabbath day, Many people believe it. By the way, I would say, according to the New Testament, Sunday is not the Sabbath. It is the, not last day of the week, it's the first day of the week. It's known as the Lord's Day. But there are many believers, especially uh, older Christians, who view Sunday as their Sabbath day, and therefore they have created a modern-day list of rules and restrictions concerning how we should behave on Sunday. And perhaps there are some of you who have been raised with these Sunday do's and don'ts, and you still find yourself at times in the grip of these man-made traditions and struggling to keep these legalistic obligations. But the real problem with this is that these rules, which usually extend far beyond Sunday, tend to become the primary focus of our Christian lives so that spirituality then becomes measured by how good you are at keeping these outward rules. So instead of growing in your relationship with Christ by cultivating inner Christ-like attitudes like humility, integrity, patience, trust, love, compassion, we tend to neglect those issues of the heart and concentrate only on the outward rules. And so like the Pharisees, if you're caught up with this, you may appear to be godly on the outside, but it's only for show. Others may think you're a good Christian, but the truth is that there's nothing much happening, nothing much going on in your walk with the Lord. On the outside, you may look good, but inside, in your heart, you know there's evil that's dominating you. Selfishness, 
pride, lust, jealousy, greed, envy, malice, covetousness, things like this. You're like the Pharisees who Jesus said, yes, you appear righteous on the outside, but inside you're dirty. You're full of dead men's bones. You're filled with ungodliness. And so as we approach this passage, we should all understand that far from being an outdated subject, Christ's words about the Sabbath and the problem with man-made traditions are most important and they are most relevant for us today. Now, last Sunday we examined the first of several arguments Jesus gave the Pharisees to explain that his disciples' behavior on the Sabbath was lawful. He told them, number one, that the Sabbath law was never intended to hinder man's welfare. Now, I'm not going to read verses 3 and 4. You know them. I read them earlier. But I will say this, that in answer to the Pharisees' charge that picking grain and eating it on Saturday was a violation of the law of Moses, Jesus called their attention to an incident that took place many years ago in Old Testament times when David and his companions actually did break one of God's laws by eating the special consecrated bread in the tabernacle that was only lawful for the priests to eat, nobody else. And the reason that Jesus brought up this particular incident was to make the point that if God allowed one of his ceremonial laws to be broken for the welfare of David and his men, then certainly he would allow Jesus and his men to break a foolish man-made Sabbath tradition. You see, the timeless principle that Jesus was teaching is that all rules should be for the benefit of of man's welfare. They should never be a hindrance to anyone's well-being. But that's not how the Pharisees viewed their rules. It didn't matter to them that Jesus and his followers were hungry. They couldn't care less about that. The only thing that mattered to them was that they had a rule that must never be broken regardless of the circumstances. See, in their religious zeal, they had forgotten the great truth about being merciful and compassionate. They simply didn't care about people. They only cared about having their religious traditions carried out. Thankfully, though, this is not the way of God. That's not the way God is. His heart is a heart full of compassion, full of mercy. We just sang that wonderful song, Wonderful Merciful Savior. I love that song. Because that is the truth about our Lord. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul refers to God the Father as the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And it was out of his heart of mercy that he gave the law of the Sabbath. Not to burden people, but to benefit people. And that's precisely why Mark, in his account of this very same incident, records Jesus saying that the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath wasn't made by God to enslave men, but to serve men. The Sabbath wasn't intended to be a master over us, but rather our servant, to serve us, to benefit us. And this is why everyone who's in a position of authority over someone, and it goes far beyond church leaders, any position of authority, even parents, teachers, others, if you're an authority over someone, you have to be careful to never allow yourself to become so unbending, so inflexible with rules and policies that you find yourself losing sight of being merciful. That's what the Pharisees did. You see, apart from a moral issue, 
one that's clearly spelled out in Scripture, it's all right. It's all right to change a rule, a policy, for the benefit of someone else. We need to make sure that our rules really are servants and not tyrants. And the basis for this approach to rules is that if God allowed one of his ceremonial laws to be broken for the benefit of David and his men, then you and I can certainly allow one of our man-made rules to be broken too if it benefits someone. That's the principle. And that's precisely the point that Jesus was making with the Pharisees. But he wasn't finished. He wasn't finished dealing with this issue because as he continued speaking, he proceeded to give the Pharisees a second argument to explain that the behavior of he and his disciples on the Sabbath was very lawful. Having told them that the Sabbath law was never intended to hinder man's welfare, Jesus now moves on to say, number two, the Sabbath law was never intended to hinder anyone's ministry. Now, in order to see this particular argument, you'll not see it in Luke's gospel, but you will see it in Matthew's account of this same incident. Because it's in Matthew that we read, Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 12, verse 5. He said, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Now, having just referred the Pharisees to the Old Testament story about David and his men breaking a ceremonial law, and yet they were not condemned by God, Jesus once again turns the Pharisees' attention back to the Old Testament by reminding them that the Jewish priests have to work in the temple on Saturday, on the Sabbath. And they're not guilty of breaking the law. See, every Jewish person of that day was well aware of the fact that on the Sabbath, their priests, the Jewish priests, were required to be at the temple in Jerusalem where they would do the work of lighting the fires of the altar, killing the animals being sacrificed, and then lifting the dead carcasses and placing them on the altar. In fact, according to Numbers chapter 28, verses 9 and 10, the priests actually had to work harder on the Sabbath than on any other day of the week, simply because on the Sabbath they were commanded to offer sacrifices of two lambs in addition to all the other normal daily offerings. Now, listen, the reason that Jesus brought this up was to tell the Pharisees that in spite of the fact that priests were required by law to work on the Sabbath, they weren't guilty of breaking the Sabbath law. That's what Jesus meant when he said at the end of verse 5, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. In other words, he's saying that when God gave the Sabbath law, he never intended it to be understood that all work should cease on that day since he also commanded priests to work on that day, and in spite of their Sabbath day labors, they're not guilty of breaking the law of the Sabbath. Now, in telling them this, what our Lord was doing, he was challenging the Pharisees to understand an important truth about God's original intention in instituting the law of the Sabbath, and it's this. God never meant his commands to cease from working on Saturday to be understood as a non-negotiable moral law. A moral law that prohibited all kinds of work on this day. 
by necessity. There were certain activities that had to be done and therefore God commanded them to be carried out on the Sabbath and the work of ministry by the priests was one of them. See, it's important for us to understand that a major, not the only, but one major purpose of the Sabbath law was to curb man's natural tendency to never take a day off from his weekday labors because out of greed, he wanted to work as much as he could so he could make as much money as he possibly could. In other words, the Sabbath rest was a reminder not to be a greedy workaholic. But listen, not all work was motivated by the desire to make money. Some work involved serving God in ministry. And that's precisely what the priests were called to do. And so their Sabbath work was permissible. Now it's interesting to know that even today in the nation of Israel, this truth is understood by the citizens of the land. I remember on one of our trips to the Holy Land, our tour guide saying, telling us all in the the buses we're traveling, that in Israel, he said, all business is shut down on the Sabbath so that no Jewish person works on that day. Now, I'm listening to this, and I found this interesting, fascinating. Why? Because he was telling this to us on the Sabbath. (laughs) And he's working. So, I'm usually very close to the tour guide sitting in the front of the bus. So I said, so why do you work on the Sabbath? You know what his answer was? He said, well, what I'm doing is ministry. I thought, oh, there you have it. What he's doing is ministry. He's right, actually. Um, No one can be a tour guide, a licensed tour guide in Israel, except they go through what's called the ministry of tourism. I could never be a tour guide in Israel. I could be a leader of a group, but never a tour guide. I would be breaking the law. So he's right. Well, what he's doing is ministry. There you go. That's the answer. Even in modern day Israel, there is an understanding that not all work has to cease On the Sabbath, the work of ministry is allowed on that day. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees. He is telling them that in spite of their inflexible, unbending approach to all work ceasing on the Sabbath, the work of ministry is certainly allowed because the scriptures teach that priests are required to do their sacred service on the Sabbath. Now, folks, in principle... Listen, this is really no different than someone today claiming that since Sunday is the Christian's Sabbath, therefore no believer should ever, ever, ever work on Sunday. That's wrong. It's wrong because pastors have to work on Sunday. Other Christian workers have to work on Sunday. In fact, like priests in the Old Testament who worked harder on the Sabbath than on other days, pastors have to put more effort into their Sunday labors than they do on other days of the week. So contrary to what a neighbor long ago said to me, I thought you guys only work one day of the week. No, pastors work throughout the week and have to work very hard on Sundays. So the timeless truth that Jesus was teaching is that the Sabbath law was never intended to be a hard and inflexible rule that was to be applied just across the board for all work to cease. And the proof of this is that the command to cease from one's labor on Saturday did not apply to priests who carried on their ministry for the Lord and they did it on the Sabbath. But watch this, because there's something else, something critically important in connection to this truth that Jesus wanted the Pharisees 
to know. Notice what he told them next in verse 6. Now, we're still in Matthew, Matthew 12, verse 6. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Having just spoken of the priest doing work, ministry in the temple, the Lord now says that something greater than the temple is here, and that something is himself. Himself. The point that he's making in telling the Pharisees this is that if priests are allowed to violate the Sabbath law for the purpose of ministering in the temple, then how much more should he and his disciples be considered innocent of breaking the Sabbath law since he's greater than the temple and he and his disciples are actually involved in the work of doing ministry for God. Folks, this statement by Jesus must have absolutely stunned the Pharisees because in their minds, nothing other than God himself was greater than the temple. But that's exactly why Jesus said what he said. Because by telling them that he's greater than the temple, he is telling them that he's God. And as God, everything he does involves ministry. Everything. His entire life is ministry. His entire life is kingdom oriented. Even picking grain on the Sabbath so that he and his men would be physically strengthened and sustained in order to carry on their work. It was all related to ministry. You have to have strength to carry on ministry and that's what Jesus is telling them. Therefore, he's saying that he has every right to do whatever he wants to do on the Sabbath because what he is doing, it's all ministry. And as he goes on to show, this ministry involved the work of being merciful to others. And that leads us then to the third argument that Jesus gave. Number one, the Sabbath was never intended to hinder man's welfare. Number two, the Sabbath was never intended to hinder man's ministry. Now, he tells them that the Sabbath was never intended to hinder acts of mercy. Now, once again, I refer you to Matthew's parallel account of this incident found in chapter 12, where Matthew records Jesus saying these words in verse 7. Notice. But he says, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now, just as he had done in bringing up the story of David and his men eating the consecrated bread and the priests working on the Sabbath, our Lord once again appeals to the Old Testament scriptures to make a point with the Pharisees, only this time his point is a sharp rebuke, stinging rebuke. When he says, but if you had known what this means, Jesus is telling them, that even though they prided themselves on being experts in their religion, there is a critical truth found in God's word that they did not know except on an intellectual and academic level. And that critical truth is revealed, and here's what he's quoting from, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. God is saying that. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. Now the Pharisees certainly were familiar with this statement in Scripture. They knew Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. They had read it many times. Most likely they had even memorized it. But it's truth 
had never gripped their hearts. It had never penetrated so as to permeate their lives. They only knew of this in a theoretical, scholarly, academic, intellectual way. They had never allowed this truth about mercy to burrow its way beneath the surface of their minds so that it affected their hearts and their lives in a daily practical way. And we can be so guilty of doing the same thing. It was obvious that they hadn't really entered into any experiential, practical understanding of what these words meant. Because Jesus said, if they had known what this means, then they would not have been unmerciful in condemning the innocent. Meaning you don't know what this really means. Not, not in your lives, not in your hearts. In other words, they didn't know what this verse meant about mercy because if they had, then they would not have condemned he and his followers who were innocent of their charges of breaking the Mosaic law. Now let's consider what Jesus meant by all this. And then how does it apply to our lives? Well, first of all, when God says that he desires compassion and not a sacrifice, he does not mean that animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were unimportant. They obviously were important. He commanded them to be done. It's just that they were part of the ceremonial aspect of the law. They were mere temporary symbols all pointing to Christ and his perfect sacrifice on the cross. And because the sacrifices were just symbolic ceremonies, they, they certainly weren't as important as God's eternal moral standards, such as showing love and compassion and mercy towards others. Now, what Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of is focusing on the ceremonies of the Old Testament, such as animal sacrifices, such as the Sabbath day laws, while at the same time neglecting the more important issue of being kind and thoughtful and compassionate towards others. And because they failed to grasp God's heart of compassion and chose rather to be obsessed with all these outward rules and rituals, sadly, the Pharisees became men who were harsh, judgmental, self-righteous, and who looked down upon anyone who did not observe all their rules and rituals. Listen, you may know people just like that. People who claim to know Christ. But they're caught up in stuff like this. They have forgotten to be compassionate, but they know all the rules. And they'll be only so happy to tell you what those rules are. Precisely why Jesus said that, that these men condemned the innocent meaning he and his, his men, they condemned them for their need for food rather than being sympathetic and concerned for Jesus and his disciples satisfying their hunger on the Sabbath. All the Pharisees thought of is, look, we have a, a rule that has to be kept. Listen, folks, we have to be very careful that we don't embrace this same mindset of the Pharisees. There are plenty of Christians who do that, but they're wrong. And, and you know people like this, I'm sure, self-righteous harsh, judgmental. They never see anything wrong in their lives, but they're only so happy to tell you what's wrong in your life. God has called us to love others and to make it our priority to genuinely care for the welfare of others. Loving others and showing compassion has to be more important than anything else that we do. 
This is why the scripture says that the greatest of all of God's commandments is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus said the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. That's exactly what Paul was teaching the Corinthians when he said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I've become a noisy gong or a a clanging cymbal, just a whole lot of noise that means nothing. And if I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but don't have love, it profits me nothing. Paul is saying you're a big zero if you have everything else but love. Listen, all of our religious works, our sacrifices, even our important ministries for the Lord, they mean absolutely nothing, nothing, if you don't have love in your heart for others. So be very careful that in your service to the Lord, you do not lose sight of people and their needs. Listen, we we all have to be uh, careful about this, about having a heartless kind of Christianity, especially those of us in, in the Reformed movement, believing the truths of Scripture, believing in God's sovereignty, sometimes we can, we can have a passion about being doctrinally sound in our theology, but lacking in any feelings of tenderness for others. Now, we should be passionate about being sound in doctrine. We absolutely should be, but our zeal for biblical truth should never be at the expense of losing sight of people and their needs. There is a balance I love what Proverbs 3, verse 3 says, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. You have to have them both. Don't let kindness and truth leave you. See, God wants us to be people who believe and practice the truth of His Word, as well as people who are kind in the way that we treat others. But the Pharisees were not like this. They, they lacked any pity towards others. They were so caught up in their religious beliefs, they just had no room in their hearts to be concerned about the hunger that Jesus and his disciples had. This is the way that religion without Christ always is. It's just a bunch of cold rules, heartless rituals performed in the name of God without any love for God or for people. I grew up in a secular Jewish home, but my, as I told you last week, my dad's side of the family were very religious, Orthodox Jews, and I grew up observing this kind of cold and sterile religious legalism amongst them, amongst my religious Jewish relatives. They had a form of legalism, I didn't know how to identify it back then, but they had a form of legalism that was fastidious meticulous about keeping religious traditions, but they had very little warmth and concern for the welfare of others. This is the kind of lifeless religion that makes sure all the outward rules are kept, but is insensitive to others who are needy and who are hurting. Now, when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for not understanding this great truth that God desires compassion and not a sacrifice, they must have been highly agitated at him. They must have wondered, well, who does he think he is? 
to say such things about us that we don't know our Bibles. We're the Pharisees. And so, as Jesus continues, he tells them exactly who he is and why he has every right to speak about them and to them the way he does. And to see what he says, we need to go back now to Luke chapter 6, where we pick it up at verse 5 and we read these words. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees didn't realize that Christ's previous statement about being greater than the temple was a claim to his deity, then they certainly understood it now. Not only is he very clearly declaring himself to be the sovereign Lord of the Sabbath so that he has every right to say that God desires compassion even on the Sabbath. In addition, notice this. I mentioned this earlier, but now I'm going to clarify it. He's also telling them that he's God by calling himself the Son of Man. See, by using the word son of man, Jesus is not saying that he's completely human, that he's thoroughly a man. Certainly this is true. He is completely human. He is thoroughly a man, yet without sin. But it wouldn't make any sense for him to tell the Pharisees that he's a man. They could see that for themselves. There is nobody who doubted that he was a man. You see, the word son of man is a reference to one particular person the divine Messiah. And every Jewish person in first century Israel knew this. Why? Because in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet wrote about him, about the Son of Man. He called him the Son of Man and he meant deity. Here's what Daniel 7 verses 9 through 10 and then 13 and 14 say. I kept looking until thrones were set up And the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. Now we move down to verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." Concerning the identity of this Son of Man, none other than the great theologian R.C. Sproul said these words. He said, The one like the Son of Man in this passage is an exalted figure, one who is given power to rule and reign in the name of God, the Ancient of Days. He's no mere human, but one with divine authority. In using the name for himself, Jesus is claiming deity. So when Jesus uses the title Son of Man in Luke 6, 5, he's claiming to be the one who comes from heaven, who carries the full measure of his deity with him, and with that deity, the full authority that is associated with him. Folks, the Pharisees absolutely understood what Jesus was talking about. That by using this title, they knew he was claiming to be God. Why do I say that? Because later at his trial by the Jewish religious leaders, at the very moment, at that moment of his trial, when he said that he was the Son of Man and he would be coming in the clouds with power, that 
is the moment that they condemned him to die as a blasphemer because they understood that he was claiming to be the divine Messiah. Here's what we read. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then, then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. They understood that this was a title of deity. And going back to Luke 6, the point that Jesus is making is that as God and Lord over the Sabbath, he has the authority to declare that the Sabbath was never intended to hinder acts of mercy. And in order to drive home this truth, this point, Jesus went on to give a demonstration, really an illustration of what it means to show mercy on the Sabbath, even if it meant breaking a man-made tradition. Verses 6 and 7. We're now back to Luke chapter 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Now Luke tells us that on another Sabbath, meaning a different Sabbath from the one that he's just told us about, there was a new conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees. However, this new conflict was really just a continuation of the old one, and it's very likely that this took place soon after the first one, perhaps even a week later. Perhaps it was the next Sabbath. We don't know. And the reason that Luke tells us about this particular conflict is because it reinforces the truth that he's just told us about concerning Jesus teaching the Pharisees about putting mercy ahead of their man-made Sabbath rules. Now, in contrast to the previous Sabbath day conflict, which took place outdoors in some grain fields, this new conflict now takes place indoors in a synagogue probably the one in Capernaum, and it took place while Jesus was teaching there. Now Luke tells us that in attendance at this synagogue service was a man who, notice he doesn't simply say his hand was withered. Luke being a doctor notes, he would, this would be important to him, he notes that his right hand was withered. Neither Mark nor Matthew say that it was his right hand, but Luke does. He's a physician. He knows these things. His right hand was withered, meaning that it had dried up. It was shriveled, lame, paralyzed. It wasn't working. Also in attendance that day were some scribes and Pharisees, who Luke says were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. In other words, these men weren't there to worship God. They were there to see if Jesus would heal someone in order that they might charge him with violating the Mosaic law by doing work on the Sabbath. Commenting on the motives of the Pharisees, one Bible teacher said this, Ironically, these self-appointed guardians of the Sabbath system did not want to stop Jesus from breaking Sabbath rules. They actually wanted him to perform a healing so that they could have cause to indict him. Christ Performing a healing would best suit their horrible, heinous hatred. 
Interestingly, never throughout his entire ministry did they doubt his ability to heal, which proved his ability to forgive sin. Yet the convoluted reasoning in their sinful, prideful, obstinate hearts was that if Jesus did heal, the consequence would be that they could charge him with breaking the Sabbath. See, according to their silly and unmerciful traditions, the only justification for giving any medical treatment on the Sabbath was in a life and death situation. And this certainly was not the case with this man with a withered right hand. Jesus could easily have waited until the next day, until Sunday, to heal this man's hand because his life wasn't in danger. Who knows how long he had had this condition. But our Lord didn't. He didn't wait until another day. He purposely chose to heal his hand at that time during a Sabbath day synagogue service so that everyone could see what he had done. That's to say that Jesus deliberately, purposefully, intentionally violated the Sabbath rule of the Pharisees and wanted them to see him do this in order to reinforce the principle that the Sabbath law was never intended to hinder acts of kindness and mercy. And as Luke continues, he tells us exactly what happened. Notice verses 8 and 9. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it? And knowing what the scribes and the Pharisees were thinking, because Jesus knows what everyone's thinking, the Lord spoke up and he told the man with the withered hand to get up out of his seat, out of his pew in the synagogue, and to come to the front of the synagogue. And then with this man standing in front of the entire congregation, Jesus turned to the Pharisees and he asked them, is it lawful, is it proper to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to save a life or to destroy a life? In other words, Jesus is asking them if it was lawful to do good things on the Sabbath, like healing the withered hand of this man who's standing before them. Now, the answer to this question is so obvious that a young child could have given it. Of course it's right. Of course it's proper to do good on the Sabbath, just as it's proper to do good on any day of the week. And that's like asking, is it right for a doctor to help a patient on the Sabbath, or should he wait till another day? Of course it's right for a doctor to treat a patient on the Sabbath when there's a need. Interestingly, in Matthew's accounts of this very same incident, he records Jesus as saying these words, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 12. He said, what man is there among you who has sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He answers his own question. Now, by putting the question this way, Jesus, what he's doing is he's exposing the hypocrisy, the sheer hypocrisy of these men, because these men knew very well that if one of their sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath and needed rescuing, they would do it that very day, regardless of the fact that it would mean them doing a great deal of work on the Sabbath. And why would they do this? Well, because it affected them financially. That's why. So by asking these questions, Jesus impressed upon their minds something they already knew, that it is lawful, it is proper 
It is right to do good on the Sabbath because they would do good to one of their sheep on the Sabbath. And if that was true, and it was, then why in the world did they have a problem with him doing good to this man with a withered hand by healing him on the Sabbath since men created in the image of God are far more valuable than sheep? See, the Pharisees had more concern They have more compassion for one of their animals than they had for a human being. That's their hypocrisy. The tragedy of the Pharisees and their brand of legalism is that they regarded their religious traditions and their beliefs more highly than the welfare of their fellow man so that animals were treated better than people. In our modern world, you can see the very same thing in the religion of Hinduism, which treats sacred cows better than people. Michelle and I have been to India. We've seen this. In India, people are allowed to starve on the streets, but cows are fed very well. So like the religion of the Pharisees, Hinduism is also a religion without any mercy for human lives. But in contrast to the evil Pharisees, our Lord is merciful. And praise God for that. And so as Luke continues, he proceeds to tell us that Jesus did heal this man Right on the Sabbath, verse 10. After looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. How precious. Having asked the Pharisees these questions about whether it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath, Jesus did wait for their reply, but when no reply came, after looking around at them, meaning he just must have stared at them, just stared at them, must have been a very awkward moment. And Mark adds that he looked at them with anger, grieving at the hardness of their heart, staring at them and grieving that they cared nothing about this poor man, but they cared more about their sheep. And after looking at them, he finally told the man, when they didn't reply, with the withered hand to stretch out his hand and he mercifully restored it to full health, right in front of everybody. Now one would think, One would think that after witnessing such a remarkable miracle right in front of your eyes that the Pharisees would have fallen down on the ground and worshipped Jesus as greater than the temple, as Lord of the Sabbath, and as God indeed, the Son of Man. But because their hearts were so hard and they had nothing but evil thoughts in their minds towards Jesus, we read in verse 11 their horribly wicked response. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. According to Matthew and Mark's accounts of this, it was at this very time that the Pharisees, because they hated Jesus so much, they began to formulate in their minds a plan, a plot, how they might kill him. What a remarkably absurd, ludicrous response but a response that reveals the absolute depravity of the human heart. Here are men who claim to love God. They love God so much that they try to meticulously keep his Sabbath law, but who are now conspiring to break the Mosaic law by killing Jesus, who is God and the one who gave the law. Now, if that's not ludicrous, I don't know what is. That's just absurd. See, the truth is that these men neither love God nor his law. They only love themselves and the power they had in controlling people with their nonsensical religious traditions. 
And when they saw their controlling power being threatened by Jesus, they sought to eliminate him by having him killed. You see, folks, the irrational hatred of the Pharisees, and they had already made up their minds about Jesus, their irrational hatred towards Christ reveals the truth, frankly, about all of us. We were all born into this world as sinners by nature. That was our very nature. And because of that, we loved darkness rather than light. We didn't love God. We hated him. Now, we might have said we love God, but that's only a God we created in our own minds, not the God of the Bible. We hated him. We loved darkness. We hated the light because our deeds and our thoughts were evil and we didn't want God telling us what to do. You may be very religious. You may be zealous about your faith like the Pharisees were religious and zealous about their faith. But religious zeal isn't the same thing as having a relationship with God. These men were lost. Religious but lost. They've been in hell for over 2,000 years. Can you imagine their thoughts today? We were standing before God and we treated him that way. Listen, there's no repentance in hell. So they still hate him, even more so. But they have all of eternity to think about this. Now, contrary to what you may think, Christianity is not a religion of what you can or cannot do. It's a message from God written in his word about having a personal, loving, warm relationship with him. And that only happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross and you believe that it was for you and he becomes your Lord and your Savior. Don't hesitate. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you're simply religious, you're in trouble. If you died today, you would not go to heaven. You need Christ. Don't hesitate. Turn from your sin. The Bible calls that repentance. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ today, placing your trust in him alone for your salvation. Along with that comes an attitude of you submit to him as your Lord as you turn your life over to him. That, folks, is how one becomes a true Christian. If you'd like to talk to one of our pastors about this, then just see me as we close the service, which we're going to do now. Our Father, we thank you for these marvelous words that came from your son. And Lord Jesus, you indeed are brilliant. You sparkle, you are brilliant, your insight and profound wisdom reveals you to be exactly who you are, God. And we bow before you. The Pharisees did not, but Lord, we bow before you in our hearts. We acknowledge who you are. We are in awe of you. And we pray that what we read, what you taught here, that we will embrace these truths, that we will be merciful to others, that we will be bending in our rules and policies as long as they're not moral absolutes, that we won't be people who only are stuck on doctrine but have no heart for others. Oh God, help us to not be like the Pharisees. Help us not be like some professing Christians who are nasty and judgmental and self-righteous and only look for faults in others May we be kind and gracious and, and care about people, care about people and their needs. I pray this, Lord, that as a congregation, we will reflect 
all that you have taught us in this passage. And I pray for any here, Lord, who may be religious. Maybe they're not religious, but they don't know Christ. And I pray, Lord, you reveal yourself to their hearts and that today would be the day of their salvation. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.